Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat, Food for the Senses and Food for the Soul. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I'm broadcasting from my kitchen here in the Chicago suburbs, and I'm looking forward to introducing you to today's guest. But first, if you are a new listener to Kitchen Chat, I'd like to say a special welcome to my kitchen. It's a gathering place to learn, to learn about food. It doesn't matter what level of of, uh, cooking ability you have. For full disclosure, I am still learning (laughs) how to cook myself. But I love food, and I love to experiment and experience food. And, And I will have guests each week that can share some insight and expertise in terms of the food industry, recipes, and and just a variety of topics. So I hope you'll come back to my kitchen time after time again. You're always welcome here on webtalkradio.net. Well, today I have a very, very special guest and friend, Chef Carl Raymond, who has a variety of experience within the food industry, the publishing industry, and is going to share some great insight in terms of culinary schools and his experience in terms of attending a variety of culinary schools and earning his diploma and and what it really takes if if you are seriously considering a um, career um, and interest in cooking and, and obtaining a, a diploma. So I can't wait to, to hear more about that. But meanwhile, uh, a quick introduction of Chef Carl Raymond. He is um, he received his diploma from the Institute of Culinary Education in New York, uh, also attended French Culinary Institute of New York. He also has attended numerous professional arts program and uh, is a chef instructor at Astor Center in New York City, and uh, just a a great person, a great expert on food, and welcome to Kitchen Chat, Carl. Oh, thank you, Margaret. I always love getting together with you, and I wish I were sitting there in your kitchen and we could talk about all of these things, but it's wonderful to be back on Kitchen Chat. I love talking with you about food. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I would love to explore with you the whole concept of culinary schools and the nuts and bolts of it, the behind the scenes, and and how you got interested in attending and and how it led to to some great opportunities. Absolutely. For me, for me, it was very much a career transition. I came off, you know, nearly 25 years in a book publishing career, and I was working on a lot of food and wine books at the time. But, you know, the irony was I really didn't know how to cook very well. And I always say I made five dishes and four of them were pasta, you know. <laughs> so what I started to do to educate myself so that I would be able to work on the projects I was working on better was I started to take recreational classes at the Institute of Culinary Education, and I became quite seriously addicted, and over the course of a couple of years, probably took more than 40 classes. And these are just regular recreational classes that you can take now. They don't lead to a degree. There are groups of people that get together under the you know, um, direction of a chef. Mm-hmm. And I found I really loved it. And, of course, was staying in my corporate life. And then I decided to get a little bit more serious. And I did a program at the French Culinary Institute called La Technique. And it was Mm. eight months. And it was every single Saturday from nine in the morning till early afternoon. And it was really the first level of their professional program. And you really immerse yourself um, in culinary techniques in that program. We wore the chef whites and we were trained by, by the chefs there. And, I mean, it was really, it's an amateur program, but it was a very serious program, but I was still working my corporate job. And then I worked through that program. And then I thought, you know, it really is time to make a change in my life. And that I did want to uh, make food the the center of my life. And, you know, I came from a long marketing background and I really wanted to teach people about food. There's so much, you know, how to make food for themselves. I think when I, when I finally got over my five pasta dishes and learned (laughs) to make food for myself and my family and friends, my life really changed. It gave yeah. me a stability. It gave me a, you know, a center that I never had before. So I really wanted to share that with other people. So for me, I knew I wanted to teach. So that meant that I really did have to go to a culinary school, and I really did need to get 
the diploma. I mean, there's a difference if you've been cooking for 30 years in restaurants and, Mm -hmm. you know, you have all of that experience, but I had to go from zero to 60 or zero to a hundred extremely quickly. So I did leave my corporate, I'm sorry, go ahead. And I'm sorry, Carl, how old were you when you decided? I was 45. I was 45. I was, you know, when I went to, when I went to Institute of Culinary Education, I was definitely the old man of the class. We joked because there was a a guy in the class who was 19 and I was 45 and I felt like everybody's father. <laughs> but, you know, um, I, I did need to do that program in order to get the, um, the diploma so that I really could, could teach and get a, a teaching credential. But, you know, culinary school is, uh, I think there are a lot of myths about it because it is an extraordinary amount of work and I did it full time, you know. Um, and they're in New York then. Here and- in New York, absolutely, yes. And I want to hear, you know, the behind the scenes and everything, but if we could kind of layer this whole culinary approach. So first of all, and what might be an idea for those people who are considering, you know, looking into this is to take the recreational classes. And you took 40 recreational classes before pursuing the professional level. Um, Tell us a little bit about the recreational classes. I, you, I'm sure you have well, the, the whole thing of what you want to take. Yeah, the whole thing about going to culinary school or not going to culinary school, and if you want to make this a career change or a career choice, what you have to really figure out is what do you want to do with it? Now, again, I, I needed the diploma in order to be able to teach and get a teaching credential, so that was very specific. Right. If you just want to work in a restaurant, mm-hmm. well, maybe just volunteering at a local restaurant is a way to to get that experience. Um, recreational classes, they're never going to give you a professional degree or a professional, uh, you know, credit. What right. they're going to do, though, is they're going to make you a better home cook. You yeah. know, that's where you're really going to learn the techniques of, you know, braising, roasting, sauteing. You're going to learn about different ingredients. And of course, you're going to have a lot of fun because there's not the pressure in professional culinary school. You know, I tell my classes all the time, when we do our knife skills that, you know, we used to be graded on how fine our minced garlic was. We used to be, you know, graded on how perfectly cubed our, you know, quarter of an inch potatoes were when we had to dice them. I mean, there's a certain level of precision in culinary school that you really have to, you know, adhere to. Well, a home cook is never going to have to know that, you know, it doesn't really matter. Right. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, so, um, so that really doesn't matter. So recreational classes are a wonderful thing if you are curious about cooking, if you've never really cooked before. Um, all my classes that I teach at Aster are recreational classes. So I have people that come in and they're always a little bit, they always have their own little story. They're afraid of knives or they're afraid <laughs> of the heat of the oven or whatever it happens to be. And I think recreational classes are a wonderful way to really get yourself beyond those things and start to really learn about some of the techniques of cooking, learn about some ingredients, mm-hmm. and, and it will make you a better home cook. Absolutely. So that's what I think the, that's what I think the report, importance of the recreational piece is. Now, if that completely inspires you, as it did me, then maybe right. you can go on to something else. You can go to the next step. But I do want to um, just mention to the listeners, I actually have gone to New York City to attend one of Chef yes, Carl Raymond's classes. And I tell you, he really has been helping me get over my fear of cooking. I I don't know what it is. My father loved to cook, and he was just so talented. And, and I think that's why I love food, because he would have all these gourmet groups come in, and he'd prepare food, and, and you know, was in this gourmet club. So at an early age, I got a taste of, of wonderful food. But I've just been so intimidated, and I think a lot of it maybe is just, um, you know, knowing the skills and the techniques, and Chef Carl is amazing. You really are, and you really make your students feel comfortable, and it's a great experience there. Thank you, Margaret. I, you know, I teach in in truly a unique way. I don't teach by recipe. You know, mm-hmm. in my fundamentals class, I give everyone one recipe because they all feel they need to go home with a recipe, and of course, by the end of class, they don't even need that recipe. Right. The way I teach is by technique, and that's how I want people to really start to think about their cooking by technique and even more importantly by method. So what does that mean? Hmm. That means I want people to, you know, there are some basic cooking methods to things like stewing and braising and roasting and sauteing and pan frying and steaming and poaching, you know, things like this. 
Right. Once you understand the three or four principles of each of those methods, then you can saute anything. You can roast anything. Once you understand the cut of meat you're going to use, once you understand the oven temperatures, once you understand those principles of each of those, and that, once you start thinking about that that way, that completely frees you up as a cook. Yes. And then you can worry about the fun stuff, which is, of course, the flavoring. Yes, and I want to get to that. What would you, just in a quick little thumbnail sketch, because I know we can't go through a whole cooking course, right. you know, here, but, but what would you um, highlight in terms of some important tips that listeners can take away today and apply, you know, at, at their own homes for the different methods? Well, t- well, two things. One is the, the most important thing, bar none, and it's not specifically related to method, although it is, is you've got to have good knives. You know, you really have to have good, sharp knives because you can't function, you know, whether you're a home cook or whether you're a professional chef. If you don't have good knives and and good, um, you know, sharp knives, you really can't function. So that's number one. But sort of related to that, though, is you have to have good equipment, for example, roasting. Now, I teach a lot about roasting methods. If you don't have a good roasting pan, now, what do I mean by that? I mean Mm -hmm. a pan that's wide. I mean a pan that has a rack. I mean a pan that's made of heavy stainless steel so it conducts heat evenly, things like that. If you don't have good equipment, then any of the cooking methods are never going to work the way they really need to. Hmm. So you really need to make an investment in terms of... You do. And you know, the truth of the matter is that once you do it, then you will have those things for the rest of your life. I talk a lot about in my fundamentals class, we talk about knives, what knives you need and what knives you don't. And Mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is you need far fewer knives than people think they need. They buy these, you know, the butcher blocks with the steak knives and the, you know, scissors and all this stuff. We don't really need all of that. You need a really good chef's knife. And if you buy a really, hmm? What is a chef's knife? What is it? Uh It's a a chef's knife is the key is the key tool in the kitchen and it comes in eight, nine and 10 inch lengths. The length of the blade depends on the the theory is that the longer the blade, the the more blade there is that goes through the food and the less work that you have to do. So it's Hmm. it's easier to cut. It also depends on how big your hand is. I have long, thin Mm -hmm. fingers, so I like a long, a longer blade. If you have a smaller hand then the shorter blade is easier, but it's a it's a medium weight knife that you can really do about 90% of everything you're ever going to have to do in the hmm. kitchen with that one knife. And I am still using my mother's 1962 L.L. Bean chef's knife from way back when, because yeah. it was a good knife to begin with. And, you know, you maintain it and, you know, I still have it. So if you buy a good knife to start with, you'll have it the rest of your life. That is oh, and how wonderfully sentimental too to have. Well, every time I look at that blade and I see LL Bean, it certainly you know I grew up in the coast of Maine, so anything that you know pulls me back to that is. (laughs) Yeah, and I do want to get back to your roots um, shortly in terms of how growing up there has influenced a lot of your cooking. But if we could maybe just go back to a few other highlights with some of the other methods that you know, great sure that our listeners here on WebTalkRadio.net and Kitchen Chat can take home with them today. Uh, so you want some you want some tips of, of yeah. So the roasting you said get the good well. I've talked about the roasting pan. I think the other one one of the one of the really great methods and most common methods is sauté. Huh. And okay. you know because people want to sauté chicken breast or sauté vegetables or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the keys of sauté sauté actually comes from the French verb sauté, which means to jump. Yeah. So in a classic sauté, any anything in that sauté pan is constantly quote jumping in the pan. You know, it's always uh, um, in in movement in the pan. But here's yeah. the big trick with sauté mm. is that most people are not sautéing at a high enough heat. When you put your sauté pan, and it should be again good quality stainless steel, when yeah. you put that on your stove, you need to turn that heat all the way up. Mm. So it's a very very hot flame, and you put a very thin layer of canola oil or vegetable oil or peanut oil, not extra virgin olive oil. You need an oil that will, because you're cooking at a high temperature, something that won't smoke at that high temperature. And olive oil, which we all love because of its mm-hmm. healthy you know, um, components, will yeah. smoke at that, that high temperature. So some things to think about when you're going back to your stove and you're going to try to saute something is 
really use a very high heat, use an mm -hmm. oil that will not smoke at that and keep things moving in the pan because obviously if you keep them sitting in the pan at that high heat, they're going to burn. Obviously. Right. Oh, so, yes, I've had that experience. You know, <laughs> right. So, you know, these are a couple of tips that people start to rethink what those methods mean. And, and I always say saute does not mean what most people think it is. It's not putting a chicken breast in the pan for 45 minutes and hoping for the best. I mean, it really <laughs> is a very specific method, right? Right. And can you use butter or is that just too much of a fire hazard? That well, no, heat. it's not. No, it's not a fire. But the the thing with the heat, butter is made up of three things. It's made okay. up of fat. It's made up of water, and it's made up of milk solids. So if you did put your saute pan on the stove and turned your heat way up and put butter in the pan, the first thing that's going to happen, the water is certainly going to evaporate. The fat will be okay in the pan, but it's those milk solids that are going to burn, oh. and they will turn black. So you actually can't saute with regular butter. What you can do, though, is actually make something called clarified butter, which uh -huh. if you've ever noticed butter, when you melt it, of course, the water evaporates immediately, but the white foam that sits around in that pan, those are the milk solids. And if you scoop uh -huh. all of those out, what you're left with is just that beautiful golden butter fat. And you can saute at very high temperatures with just the butter fat. The other alternative is to throw a pat of butter into your vegetables or whatever it is that you're sauteing right at the end. So it's not at the end. Part. Okay. Now, with Julia Child, did she use the canola oil and all of that, or did she use a lot of butter? Do you well, it's a, you know, I'm sure she did use the, use those things, but of course, Julia Child was a French, you know, a French cook, and you know, French French cooking loves butter. You know, yes. um, in classic, <laughs> it, well, it does. In classic French cooking, though, will use clarified butter in oh, a lot of the okay. recipes. I just and then the so clear Butter. I'm sorry, can you purchase that at a store already clarified or you do the clarification of it itself? Well, you actually, both of those things. Um, Indian cooking uses clarified butter and it's called ghee, if you've ever mm. heard of that. And you can actually, in Indian and Asian stores, buy jars of ghee, which is exactly that. It's clarified butter. It's very easy, it, frankly, and of course, a lot less expensive to make it yourself. You just take right. some, you know, half a pound of butter and melt it in, you know, a pot and skim off the. Um, the milk solids, and then you have the, the clarified butter. Okay, and I'm sorry. And it gives a wonderful buttered flavor, yeah. Yeah, how do you spell ghee? G-H-E-E. -E. Okay, so think of glee and ghee. <laughs> so, well, so that's already yeah. clarified butter, so you can save a step. Right. Because, you know, it is important because a lot of women are working outside of the home and, and want to right. come back and prepare some great meals, but right. uh, time is of the essence. And, Absolutely. Uh, so that, Absolutely. Yeah, that is great to know. Wonderful. These are great methods to know. So that's one of the things you really focus on in your fundamental cooking classes that you teach at Astor Center there in New York uh, would be the techniques and the importance of knives and the, the methods of, of the different um, cooking um, options. Yes. Uh, now, what about, let's just kind of take it a step further here and and follow your steps where you went to these recreational classes at the French Culinary Institute and then started your professional classes at Institute of Culinary Education. First of all, at the French Culinary Institute for your recreational classes, what was the most fun and memorable class that you took there? And did that influence any of your classes that you now offer and teach at Aster? Um, well, yeah, yes to all. I, th I think two of the most memorable classes I had at French Culinary when I was doing La Technique. One is, and again, we were we were being taught very classic French principles, and one was actually to make puff pastry. Mm -hmm. And to make puff pastry from scratch, it's something that most home cooks don't don't often do. What it is is you make a regular dough of some flour and water, but then you start um, rolling layers of butter into the dough. So what happens mm -hmm. is when that puff pastry is put into the oven, the dough rises and all those layers, the, the butter melts, and that's what gives you that gorgeous flaky puff pastry. But it, it, it was quite a funny class because, you know, you have to roll that dough and keep rolling it and flip it and turn it and roll it. And, it, you know, you just, the image of just pouring all that butter into the, you know, into the dough was kind of funny. And then we did at one point, we did a buttercream frosting for our our cake class, and I don't think I've ever whipped so much butter into a frosting in my entire life. Oh, we just no. <laughs> broke up laughing because I've never seen so much butter. So, 
you know, so those were some fun and funny moments of that. In terms of what influenced me the most, actually, was when I was in my professional program at at Institute of Culinary Education. And, you know, culinary schools teach by usually by module, meaning that you will have, you know, sections of six weeks where you focus on key cooking techniques or six weeks on international cuisine or six, whatever it happens to be. And I was just starting our module on pastry and baking. And that is just not my favorite piece of the world. I, you know, I do it because I have to do it, but it's, I'm much more of a savory cook. And I, you know, anyway, day one, our chef said, I am going to teach you pastry and baking by method. That's the first time I'd ever heard that. And that's exactly what he did. He taught us to make those doughs by method. He taught us to make those batters and things by method and proportion. And that's what I took away. I made some pretty good batters and doughs and breads for the rest of that in that class. But the notion of method, I absolutely took away from that and and use that in my in my teaching today. And not 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 for pastry. I use it for everything. So that that was really a very important moment for me. And what is the method then? What would be like the defined method for pastry and baking? Well, it's a proportion of, you know, when you start off with, you know, you always start creaming butter and sugar together and mixing those. And then you Uh want to add your eggs and then you want to add your flour and your flavorings. I mean, it's a it's a real series of steps and you slightly vary them depending on the kind of batter that you're going to make or the kind of dough that you're going to make. But it's it's learning. It's learning those basic um, methods and steps. One of the things that I teach in my fundamentals class is the method of making a pan sauce. Now, sauces we could talk about forever, and yeah, I actually sure. teach a class, um, a sellout class on on sauces. But there's a very simple way to make a sauce in a saucepan where you've just sautéed your pork chop or your chicken or your steak or whatever it is, uh-huh. and it's a method of adding acid, which is usually wine, and adding some flavorings, which are usually shallots or onion, and adding stock and then herbs and finishing it with butter. Uh-huh. Once you understand the method of putting that sauce together. You can flavor it any way you want. Maybe you want some more herbs than I do. Maybe I want some more butter than you know than you do. Um, right. But it's really all about balancing that flavor between the acid and the fat, and that's about really starting to learn about your palate. Interesting. And so cooking really is like a scientific and a mathematical equation that ends up creating art. It is, and you know. Um, there was an article one of my students wrote one time about the transformations in the kitchen, and I think that that's, that's very true. I, I really try to talk a lot about the processes of things that are happening, not to get all crazy with the science because, right. you know, um, that can get it's a little heavy, but I do. Yeah. I'm sorry? And it's intimidating because I remember, you know, maybe that's why I'm fearful of cooking because I'll never forget in eighth grade, one of my science experiments exploded. I didn't have the (laughs) top on the vial or whatever that's called. And and it ended up going on my partner, you know, in the science lab. And I just felt so terrible. (laughs) But there is a certain amount of this, of the science. And I don't ever usually use that scary S word, but, um, you know, that you really do need to know because once you know it, then if something is going wrong, you also know how to fix it. I mean, I talk a lot about emulsion sauces, for example, and we make, in my sauce class, we make vinaigrettes and we make mayonnaise and we make the big scary one, hollandaise, Ah. all from scratch. And once you understand sort of the basics of the, you know, the fat molecules and the the moisture molecules and what makes them stick together, I mean, Mm -hmm. in a vinaigrette, it's about the mustard. That's the glue that holds those molecules together. Once you understand things like that, then right. if something goes wrong, then you know how to fix it. Okay. And that's what yeah. I think about. And that's important to, to know how to fix it. Now, you mentioned a term I find so intriguing, savory cook. What exactly does oh. that mean? Well, there are usually two kind of, I don't know, headsets, if you want, or or DNA. You know, there's there are people that seem to be much more drawn to baking and pastry and the sweet, um, the sweet kinds of, of food preparation. And then there are people that seem to be more drawn to savory, which is the saltier and the, you know, the non-pastry things. Hmm. And I tend to be much more in that camp. Again, as a chef and doing what I do, I have to absolutely do, do all right. of it. But out in the cooking world, you tend to find people that really, I, in fact, 
for some reason, most of my friends are in, over in the baking camp. They would be perfectly happy making croissants and scones all day long, whereas I'm, you know, give me a soup pot or a roast or a stew, and I'm very happy chef. So uh, that's the difference. And we like happy chefs. That is great. And, <laughs> and I want to encourage everyone to visit um, Carl's website as well. He has links to his classes that are being featured at Astor Center in New York. Um, and your website is chefcarlnyc.com. That's Chef and Carl is spelled with a C-A-R-L-N-Y-C.com. And you have links to the different classes. And, um, and real quickly, if we could touch upon uh, some of the favorite classes, once again, talking about influence, but I think you've gone beyond um, the influence of um, La Technique and everything in, in offering something that is so much fun and kind of themed cooking uh, where Absolutely. you're able to present your methods and everything, but in a really fun setting. Could you share a few Absolutely. of the highlights from that? Oh, sure. Well, I, you know, I do a lot of international cooking classes because I have, I've traveled a lot and I love a number of international cuisines, but we've, we've done actually some, some classes that are really quite fun. Um, I conceptualized a little over a year ago, dinner with Mad Men. Ah. Of course, people have been so passionate about the, you know, the show Mad Men. But what it what that really has done is is bring back, and of course I do remember the 60s, but it really brings back the style and the food and of course the cocktails of the 60s. So right, right. we created a class dinner with Mad Men. So what it was, it was a dinner party that, you know, Betty and Don might well have thrown for their friends. So <laughs> it was it was great fun to research. You know, we did shrimp cocktail and beef stroganoff because there were a lot of influences in the food at that time. You know, the Kennedys were in the White House and they had put yeah. a French chef in the White House. So all of a sudden, the standard for classic, gracious food was now French. So home cooks were, and thanks to Julia Child, she helped yeah. home cooks do this, but they were scurrying around trying to make their beef bourguignons and their, you know. So um, there was definitely an influence of that. And uh, and then we do a, a, a faux Polynesian pork dish, you know, there was uh -huh. an influence because so many soldiers had come back um, from the wars in the in the East. And so there was this whole resurgence of this sort of fake Asian cuisine. It just huh, everything interesting. You know, red and peppers and all that. Oh sure. So we do we do that. And um then the desserts, we do a grasshopper pie, which involves <laughs> melting, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, twenty four marshmallows and crumbling up a couple of bags of Oreo cookies for the crust. Oh but how it uses fun. um yeah, it uses um the liqueur is creme de menthe and creme de cocoa in the mm. in the uh, filling. So, yeah, these are things that really bring you back to that that particular time. So that was a great deal of fun. And then, um, I guess it was what a year and a half, two years ago now, when um, the movie Julie and Julia came yes, out, which of course yes. brought so many a whole new generation really of people that did not grow up with the cooking of Julia Child um, back to her to understand who and what she was because there really isn't that kind of force in in um, TV food programming right now. Right. Anyway, we did a whole class um, on the classics of Julia Child, and it was really understanding what she did. And she took these incredibly complicated French recipes and broke them down so that anybody of any cooking level could could make them. Mm -hmm. And when you that's the brilliance of mastering the art of French cooking of Julia Child is, you know, the recipes are pages long and you think I can't ever do this. Right. But she and her co-authors really broke them down in ways that um, people could understand them, regardless really of your cooking level. So we had those were a couple of really fun ones. Oh, that is fun. And when I was in New York, it was the James Beard theme. Yes, because I wanted to, um, in that class, um, really look at people that had influenced um, food and where we are today. And yeah. there are people that don't know James Beard. Of course, there's the James Beard Foundation, but but there are people that really don't know what his contribution was. And he was really, back in the 50s, one of the really first great cooking teachers. Yes. Wow. And would you say that um, James Beard and Julia Child have had the most influence on your cooking? Or, or who all has inspired you, some past and recent? Well, let's see. I think, yes, of course, Julia Child, absolutely. I like to say that I could bone a chicken at age six from watching Julia Child <laughs> with my mother. I don't know if that's really true, but oh. she really did. Um, of course, my mother, because oh. my mother was a woman that came out of this, this odd era of... Um, you know, she was a good, solid New England cook where everything was done from scratch. But also, 
in the late 40s and 50s, there was so much more packaged food that was available. So, you know, you would have those cans of soup that turned into casseroles and things. So anyway, but the good cooking principles definitely came um, from her. Some people that I love, um, I love the work of Paula Wolfert. She's a, a cookbook author that's been writing for some time, and she focuses on really Mediterranean and um, some North African and Middle Eastern cuisines. I think her books are extraordinary. She's extremely precise. Everything is very well researched. Mm. Um, I love I love reading her work. Um, two of my favorites now, um, who I think are two of the best teachers right now, mm-hmm. is absolutely Lydia Bastianich, a great Italian chef and cook. Um, when you watch her, she really teaches you how to cook. She breaks things down. Um, she focuses on the flavor. And the other one whom I simply love is Jamie Oliver. I love what he yeah. does. Um, not only just the, the fresh ingredients, it's more than that, but he also, he cuts you some slack in the kitchen. You know, it's, there are always people that want to fo- follow a recipe, you know, to the letter. And if it tells you a quarter of a cup of chopped basil, that's exactly what it is. He gives you a lot more freedom mm-hmm. once you understand that you're, what you're doing. But those are some folks that I really, I, that I turn to. And I really admire what um, Jamie Oliver has done in terms of the school cafeterias. And oh, absolutely, show, absolutely. Yes, bringing it back. I mean, the food, you know, food, food and food principles and taste and healthy eating. I, I uh, believe me, I'm not the first one to ever say this, but it really does start very young, and yes. the palate starts very, very young. And hmm. um, I think the better, the better food, the healthier food, the less sugar and salty food. certainly the less processed food Mm -hmm. that you um, taste from a young age does infect your, uh, you know, influence your palate all the way up to adulthood and, of course, makes you a healthier person. And what dish with your, amongst your many, many places of travel, because you took some time off to study in Europe and and cook and and all of that in Europe, what, what dish has really surprised your palate the most? It, you mean in terms of changing my palate or what? what or just in terms of uh, what dish, yes, new taste that really surprised your palate. Oh, what what I love and I become passionate about them are curries. Huh. Because, you know, I grew up and, you know, I always thought curry was the powder in the jar, you know, the orange powder, and that was sort of what curry was. Right. And the very first time I ever went to London, it was back in the 70s, my very first restaurant was actually um, an Indian restaurant. And all of a sudden I had this taste hmm. where it was, it felt like hundreds of tastes were bombarding me from all over the place. There was, you know, there was sweet and salty and sour. And I mean, there was all sorts of things. Hmm. And so I become quite a passionate advocate for curries and curry making. And that, you know, it's, it's unfortunately not one dish. It's actually many, many dishes, but I love the combinations of the spices, which are infinite. I love the combinations of the pastes and things that are used to make those dishes. So um, I've studied a lot of curry making. I, I hmm. teach it. Um, in fact, I teach a world curry class, which um, starts off with classic Indian curries, but then goes to Thailand and Vietnam and Indonesia. And we end up in Guyana in the New World because all those curries are made very differently. So, you know, I feel like the curry king sometimes. But that's that's a dish that really um, I'm very, very passionate about. That is great to know. Oh, well, back to the whole per- pursuing um, the courses and your diploma at the Culinary Institute. What other types of courses are required? So we went through the baking, and um, uh, what other other courses are required? Do you get much choice in the selection, or is there like a preset menu, a prefix? In it's terms pretty of much, yeah, it's pretty much, um, it depends, it it. it of course, it depends on where you go, but in general, it's pretty much a preset course. You start off with everything from, you know, knife skills to ingredient identification to you spend a lot of time on cooking methods and techniques. You know, you go in and day after day, it's, you know, you'll be steaming or poaching or roasting or whatever it is, and you go through, you know, dozens of recipes using those techniques so that you really understand how they work. The, the very first, um, day I was in culinary school, one of the chefs was explaining something to us, and he said, you'll cook every dish you've ever heard of, and he wasn't wrong. But there are other things that, yes, you do have the pastry and baking. You do have a lot of work in international cuisines, you know, French and Italian and Asian and Indian and, you know, Latin. You definitely have that to understand those flavors. But then there were some really quite interesting things. We had a section on charcuterie, which is making Hmm. sausages and pâtés and things. Um, 
which is a lot of work for a home cook, but it really, if right. you like a good pate, to actually see how it goes together or to actually make sausages and, and, and you know, from scratch with the flavorings and, and putting them in the casings, that was, that was great fun. Wow. Um, the end of the end of the culinary program usually ends with classes, which they call market basket. I mean, they're called different things, different places, but that's where you walk into a class with just random ingredients and you oh. have, you have no recipes and you have to actually create something and have it cooked, you know, well and correctly. And, you know, a little bit of a surprise. That is, oh, and that's like my everyday occurrences. I don't seem to plan. And if you offer any guidelines in terms of how a home cook can just sit down and plan the menu for the week and have, you know, that wonderful mise en place and all the ingredients, because I feel like I go to my pantry and my refrigerator at four o'clock each day and panic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think a lot of it, you know, in the world of the home cook, and again, you know, what a restaurant chef has to deal with and what a home cook has to deal with, you know, is very, is very different. Right. Um, it's really, but, but where it's very similar is it's about planning. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of figuring out on Sunday or Monday what you can do that will carry you through the week. One of mm-hmm. the things that I teach in terms of cooking vegetables is a French method. It's called blanching and shocking. Or, and oh. we'll, we do it with green beans, but you can do it with any green vegetable. And what it is, is you blanch something, and what that means is throwing it into boiling water until it's almost all the way cooked, but not quite, mm-hmm. taking it out, drying it off, and then plunging it, well, actually plunging it into cold water once it comes out of the hot water. And what that does is seal the color and it seals the texture. Mm-hmm. And then you dry it off, and then you will either saute it or you'll roast it or whatever. There's another cooking method that's going to come in there to finish off the vegetables. But you can do that way ahead of time. You can you know, blanch and shock a whole lot of green beans on a Sunday afternoon, and then you have your vegetables all set for the week, and you just throw them in a saute pan for about 30 seconds, and you come home from work and are tired, and you have your vegetables all cooked. So you don't have to go through the whole process of of cooking them from start to, you know, finish. I think if you roast a chicken Mm -hmm. for a Monday night dinner, then you've got, you know, you can put chicken in a salad for Tuesday night dinner. You can, you know, there are ways to use these things throughout the week. And I think that's, I'm a huge fan of that. Uh, yes, planning is key. Whether you're a home chef or a professional chef, um, yes. taking the classes and getting a diploma at, at uh, because then you end up with just a lot of leftovers in your kitchen that don't make any, don't make any sense. You're right. You're right. And that happens to me so often. And, and it's challenging because both my daughters are vegetarians and my husband, yep. you know, enjoys um, meats. And uh, it, it's just challenging finding something where they can be separate yet together, if that makes right. sense, in right. terms of, of meal planning. Um, and back to getting your diploma and everything at the yes. Institute. So, what was the start to finish time in terms of completing and earning your diploma? So if someone it was for me, it was six months. It was six, six months, months, and I did okay. that full time. It was five days a week. Um, wow. I, I happened to do an afternoon program, so it was one o'clock in the afternoon till five o'clock for five days a week. Yes, and it was six months nonstop. Yeah. Um, there are different, you know, schools, obviously because they're, you know, accommodating people that have various work schedules. Um, they're. Um, you know, you can do it a couple of nights a week or on Saturdays or whatever. And of course, it takes much, much longer to do that. I, I wanted to do it as quickly as I could so I could really get out there in the world and, and start cooking. And but, you know, what? the whole the whole process. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. That's fine. Well, I mean, there's such a myth, too, about going to, to culinary school that I, I don't think um, a lot of people realize, you know, the food media has really has really glamorized the whole cooking world and industry and, you know, with all of the reality programming and right. And that, when you couple it with a lot of midlife career changers, people that just want to change their careers or people that have been laid off or whatever it happens to be, and they're looking for something new, you have to really be very smart about why you're going, you know, to cooking school, which is what I said, you know, at the beginning of the whole interview, because I actually, I wrote, I was a co-author on a book called Becoming a Culinary Professional, which is published by Learning Express. And one of the things that I talk about in that is the stamina that you need there are things that like teamwork which you absolutely need to have mm-hmm. but things like stamina i mean i i was doing a freelance job for the food network and i remember that um i had taken the subway here in new york down to the studios and i had done my day of work and when i got out and i sat down on the subway to go home that was the first time i had sat down all day since i got oh, off the subway that morning oh. you are always on your feet you know and i think yeah. next to a good knife is chef's best friend is a good pair of shoes 
So, and you know, and you're always. That's a great point. A good pair of shoes for the chefs. It's essential. It's quite a workout, as you were talking earlier about all the chopping and and you know it's it's a real uh, cardiovascular. (laughs) Well, you know, you know, in the chef now a home you know a home cook isn't going to have to deal with it in quite the same way. But the world of a chef, I mean, a a professional chef in a restaurant, you're bending, you're lifting. The ovens are low. There are refrigerators that are low. You're reaching. You know, you're pushing heavy racks around. I mean, you really, the physical stamina that you need for restaurant work is really, really essential. And, you know, if you're 22, that comes probably, you know, more naturally than it does when you're when you're 45 or, or older. So I think that's something that people don't think about. Right. You know, it's not just standing there and, you know, saucing a plate. There's There's a lot of very, very hard work in it. And the hours are extremely long. You know, yeah. you can have a shift and they'll say, oh, well. You know, you're out of here at 10 o'clock, and then someone will ask you to clean out a refrigerator, and you're there till 1 in the morning. You know, who wants to do wow. that? So. Uh, yeah, it is hard work and, and and something you need to consider and going in with your uh, eyes open in terms of what you want to get out of the experience. Either go recreational, which are options, and, and go attend some classes at Astor Center in New York City with, with Chef Carl, or if you really want to go professional and, and looking at the options. And is there like a directory of culinary institutes for different states, or where could someone go if, if that is an interest? You know, the best, I mean, there, prob- there probably is. The, you know, the uh, the internet is sort of your best friend in that. Yes. In that sense, depending on where you are um, mm-hmm. geographically, yeah, that that can help you tremendously. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was very proud. One of my students who um, had come and he knew a little, but not very much, and had taken um, I don't know five or six of my classes. I just had an email from him the other day, and now he's a full-time student at the French Culinary Institute. Wow. So that's you know. I feel like one of my children has fallen out of the nest. I don't know. <laughs> that is so exciting, the influence and inspiration you have on, on so many people. Let's talk about um, another quick trend, and, and that is the whole gluten-free entertaining. You, hmm? Could you share with us a little bit about your experience and noticing what's happening within this trend? Well, yes, and it's you know what's interesting is you know the whole you know Let's Eat Healthy feeling and thoughts and trends is certainly nothing new that's gone on for a very long time but we're sort of taking it now to another level and people really are understanding how you eat does dramatically affect your health and it dramatically affects specific conditions or diseases if that's what you want to call you know so um the gluten-free uh i don't know if we'll call it a movement but the gluten-free focus i think is extremely important and one of my very, very good friends, who's a fine home cook, she's she's gluten free, and sort of I've been living with her trajectory through this over the past couple of years, and she's completely changed how she feels. And you know, it was a very long diagnosis; it took a long time for people to realize her to find out that she really had some gluten issues. So, what's interesting is whether you actually have celiac disease or not, people have even just mild wheat sensitivities, and once you change your food and you take the wheat out of your diet and cook differently and clean is sort of what we call it, you know, we chefs call it is, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot of gluten-free food out there that you can go to the market and, and buy. I would right. worry about that a little bit. It was, it's, if you remember a number of years ago, there was all the fat-free food. The problem yeah. was yeah. it was fat-free. They'd taken the fat out, but they put a lot of chemicals in there to, to compensate for the fat. So they really uh, weren't all that healthy. They were fat-free. Right. So you have to watch the gluten-free food thing, right? you know, the prepackaged stuff. But um, I think more and more people are realizing that they do have wheat sensitivities on some level and are trying to cook better. And, and I am very much, you know, involved in, in that. So, And does it affect the taste, though, of dishes? I mean, how do you still maintain, the, you know, the, the, being a savory cook <laughs> uh, with savory dishes? Um, well, good taste is good taste. That. You know, and you never, you know, it may not be, there's a difference here because there's a difference between good taste and the same taste. Okay. Now, when you take some of these ingredients out, is it going to be exactly the same taste? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. It really mm-hmm. it, it depends. But will it taste good? You know, I um, worked for a while with Prevention Magazine doing a lot of their recipe testing and um, development for their cook section of the magazine. And Mm. I worked on a column called Sweet Makeover, where I had to take these sugary, buttery, gloopy, you know, desserts and completely rewrite them 
so that they were much more healthy, but mm. you couldn't sacrifice the taste. That's, you know, where a lot of, you know, the, the fat free and some of these different recipes go wrong is that they don't taste very good, you know? Right, right. So it may not taste exactly the way it did when you had a half a pound of butter in there, but <laughs> there are other things that you can add in there. Oil, for example, you know, mm -hmm. um, I was working with a chef the other day and she was substituting butter for olive oil or I should substituting olive oil for butter in her recipe. Mm. And they were delicious. It changes the crumb a little bit, but right. it was delicious. So yes, there are things that you can make and they will still taste good. Okay. And what about, um, do, you, do you see more dishes now with, with the focus on healthy eating and everything? And I never know how to pronounce this, but acai berry, is that how I say it? The, oh, acai? Acai. They're like the... <laughs> They're the, the hyper the hyper blueberries, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're not blueberries, but yes, you know things like that. Um, are, you know you can use. I use actually agave, which is a great substitute for sugar. Um, it's a plant based sweetener, and you know it. The great news about that is that it's a much lower, you know, the glycemic index, so that you know that will people that are watching their weight using something like agave will actually. Um, you know, it helps, it helps with that um, excess sugar. So yes, there are some of these things now that plant-based things that are, that are wonderful that we can use. Great. Now that's wonderful to, to hear. I didn't realize you had uh, worked on that column, Sweet Makeovers for Prevention Magazine. Yeah. You are quite busy. Uh, you also are a chef ambassador, is that right, for Roland Food. Yep. Could you share a little bit uh, about that? Sure. Um, this is something that I started. Roland Foods is a um, food importer um, that have been around for really quite some time since um, the early years of the, the century. And um, they're really one of the first and certainly one of the largest international um, food importers. And hmm. I became involved with them through their um, PR department to become a chef ambassador for them. So what does that mean is I've done a number of provo promotional videos for them. I um, work trade shows for them. I represent the brand. In fact, I'm down in Baltimore next week at a trade show um, with the brand talking to people about their products. One of the things about their products to me that I love is because I spend so much of my time on international cooking is, you know, you want the products to taste like they taste wherever they're from. And, the, you know, they yeah. really, the taste of those products is, is wonderful. And um, they've done so much to make it easier for the home cook to to use them. They've cut up the artichoke. They've taken the, taken the peels off the farro. I mean, they've really done things to make the products um, very, very usable for home chefs. So I love talking about international food, and oh. Roland allows me the chance to do that. Now, what is farro? Farro <laughs> is is a grain. It it comes from um, Umbria, Italy. And, hmm. you know, there is, all of us are now looking for so many of these um, <clears throat> replacements for white rice or, yeah. you know, something a little bit different. So there are these grains, and some of them are actually seeds, things like farro and quinoa, um, that really are great, great choices. And farro is something that I love using. Um, it cooks exactly like rice. You take one part of farro to two parts of water, and you boil up that water and throw the farro in for about 15 minutes or so. And it has a wonderful nutty flavor to it, and it absorbs mm. flavors really well, and it's a it's just a delicious um, addition to your your pantry. That's great to know, and you can get that through Roland Foods. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Wonderful, great. Now, do they have recipes, um, or do you help? Yes, develop they do. Yes, they do. Usually, on each of the um, um, a lot of the packaging will have a recipe to tell you how to cook it and how to how to use it. Absolutely, the website has recipes. Absolutely. Um, if you go on YouTube and you type me in, there are several videos that I just recently did for Roland. In fact, one of them is making a farro salad, which is one oh, of my favorites. So, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll have to watch that. And then so if everybody wants maybe... to do that, then you get a, an instant <laughs> recipe with Chef Carl. That's great. And we will put the uh, link to that on, on uh, the Kitchen Chat oh, website great, great, as well. Great, great. So that'll be great. great. Now, a very important part of the Kitchen Chat segment is food for the soul. We've gone to the food for the senses, learned all about culinary schools and recreational classes and, and all of that. I'd like to, to focus a little bit on food for the soul, and you have something very special, a very special recipe that you would like to share today with the listeners. Could you please tell us uh, the story behind this special recipe and, and the meaning? 
Sure. You know, I mean, re- recipes are, you know, they can, they, can jog, they can be very meaningful. They can jog your memory. They can create, it's sort of like what Proust did, is you taste something and it takes you to a different, a different place. You know, Margaret, you had asked me for a recipe for today, and I immediately thought of an old recipe of my, from my mother. And, you know, I've spent my, my life and certainly my professional training, as I like to say, learning everybody else's cuisine. Yeah. You know, but I haven't, um, well, actually, I do. I really like to spend some time on the cooking that I grew up with. Now, I grew up on the coast of Maine. Yeah. I love good New England cooking. So every year I teach a class called the Downey's Feast where we do lobster rolls my way and we do crab cakes and all of that. Anyway, one of the recipes we use in that class is a recipe for a blueberry cake, which is uh, from my mother. And it's a very old main recipe. The way I like to describe it, it's like a gigantic blueberry muffin in a sheet pan. What is not to like about that, right? So great. it's a very simple recipe. It will be, I guess, posted on the site. So yes. everyone everyone can make it. It's great if you can do it when blueberries are in season. You can use frozen blueberries. You need to really drain them so they don't have too much moisture in the cake. But mm-hmm. um, the reason I, I love this recipe is when I think of this time of year, sort of the end of the summer going into the fall, that was what my breakfast was. My mother used to make the blueberry oh. cake and with a big glass of milk and we'd sit at the kitchen table and, and have it. So um, there's a lot of nostalgia to it, um, yeah. aside from tasting great, because I never met a blueberry muffin I didn't like. Actually, I've met <laughs> a number of blueberry muffins I didn't like, because when you put additives in, a lot of the commercially made ones are just not very good. But right, um, right. this has some very simple ingredients, and um, oh. and it's one of my favorites. So thank you for including it. I appreciate oh, that. Well, thank you for sharing some food for the soul with us here on Kitchen Chat, <laughs> and, and also your wonderful um, experience and expertise. I encourage all of the listeners to to go to your website, which is chefcarlnyc.com, and Mm -hmm. uh, check out the links on Kitchen Chat, which will include the video and a link to Carl's uh, courses, also through his website, at Astor Center, New York City. If if you're looking for, you know, unique gifts to give, why not give um, a loved one or a dear friend a cooking class experience at at Astor NYC? I think it's it's just, I can personally attest to the fact that it is a fabulous experience and you're a wonderful chef instructor and you make cooking fun and help people get over their fear of cooking and just take it to to a different level so thank you so much carl for being oh, on your welcome chat today and i hope you will join us again in the future and uh, thank oh, you I'd for sharing <laughs> the blueberry cake recipe as well and all of the insider tips on methods and techniques so Thank you. And I encourage listeners, please come back to my kitchen next week. There always is something fun and interesting going on here on Kitchen Chat with some wonderful guests such as Carl Raymond. And I'd love to hear from you. So um, my my email is there on webtalkradio.net for Kitchen Chat. So please connect with me and share some of your food for the senses and food for the soul. And please stay in touch. And always remember to savor the day. <laughs>